HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Escape Makers On Demand Agrotourism Training. For more information, go to escapemaker.biz. That's escapemaker.biz. This week on Meet and 3, we look at how delivery went from convenience to crucial. In a pre-COVID universe, the commissions from these third-party delivery service providers were really high, and you were seeing oftentimes they were as high as 30%, right? I mean, all food is about basically the history of money and the history of technological change. But takeout in particular. I'll go ring a doorbell and watch somebody come outside and wipe down their door in their doorbell after I leave. It's kind of creepy, kind of weird, but that's the state of uh, where we are now. Tune in to Meet in 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to Processing, a show about the intersection of food and grief with your hosts, Zara Tangora, and I will speak for Bobby, Bobby Conforto. Um, hi, everyone. How are you? Hope you're all hanging in there. And thank you so much for taking the time to join us and listen into the show. Um, this week, we are joined by an amazing guest, and I realized in prepping for my opening segment, I need to come up with a new catch line other than an amazing guest because I think it's implied that all our guests are absolutely amazing uh, and this week is no different as we are joined by Laura Madayo. Uh Laura comes on the show this week to share with us a bit about the tragic and sudden passing of her dad John uh, in a car accident almost two years to the date of when she joined us for this chat um, since then Laura has started uh, the Instagram handle and soon to be website called Grief Hungry, uh, which is a collection of recipes uh, combining like her love for cooking and as well as folks from uh, the grief community um, to share recipes, which is so on on our minds, obviously, through our exploration of the intersection of food and grief. And so it felt really uh, invigorating and exciting and um just really wonderful to connect with Laura and get to talk about all the stuff that we have such a common interest in. Um, 
Laura has also written for some major publications and become an advocate for um, grief leave in the workplace, which is something that honestly, even thinking about grief as much as I do, and I think I can speak for Bobby in this, although I'm sure she's maybe experienced more of more on the topic of grief leave than I have for sure, but something I don't haven't thought a lot about and um you know is just another thing that I think we don't uh you know include in the human experience when it comes to combining that with the workplace. So I was floored by the work that she did in advocating for this and uh definitely something that we want to kind of get involved and activated with more as well. Um so please check out everything that Laura's doing now at grief hungry on Instagram and there's a link in our show bio as and on our on our Instagram page as to how to check out everything she's doing um please enjoy our conversation as much as we did and please take care of yourselves and each other you know I think it's everyone's like 2020 it's the worst year ever you know Years are hard and and terrible for people for all different reasons and great for people for all different reasons. And this year, I think, is in a world sense, very difficult and challenging for a lot of folks at the same time. Um, So that's why, you know, obviously keep touching base with hope you're all doing okay out there. But uh, that goes, that's backdated. (laughs) Hope you're doing okay out there is backdated and then it, it never expires. So anyway, that's a tangent about life being tough, but uh, we love you guys, and thank you for tuning in. And please check out heritageradionetwork.org for ways that you can support the network. Uh, we can keep bringing these awesome podcasts. They are the best. And please enjoy our chat with Laura. Thanks for joining us. You're joining us from Boston, from South Boston, correct? Yes, South Boston. Cool. Interesting. What's what's the vibe like in South Boston? You know, even being a, a New Yorker uh, myself, I've not spent much time in, in Boston, and I don't really know what it, what is it what's what's it like out there. Um, I mean, obviously during uh, the pandemic, it's a little bit different. A lot of people have left the city. Not nearly as many as in New York, uh, but. Sophie is, is cool. It's kind of, um, becoming more of a, uh, mid twenties to mid thirties destination. Um, it's not a place for like right out of college. So you're usually living like in certain hubs of Boston, like right out of college. And then I feel like once you hit like the 24 25 year old mark it's usually like southie is the is the way to go um but it's really fun there's there's you know two main big roads and there's bars and restaurants all over the place so everything's very walkable and I didn't grow up in a town where things were walkable at all nor did I go to college where things were really walkable so it's nice for me to you know have a grocery store and a bar and restaurant super convenient what do you feel like it means like and maybe this is an unanswerable question but I'm just always curious when we chat with people who are like from a different part of the country because you know Bobby is a lifelong Long Islander as 
I and then I have lived for almost 20 years in, in New York City and Brooklyn. So, like, what do you, if anything, feel like it means to be a Boston, like, Boston? Oh, yikes. Um, it's hard because I wouldn't even identify myself as even living here for like five years now. I'm from Massachusetts, but I would never tell people I'm from Boston. I think it's, I, I think it's, unless someone is from another planet and has like, I can't say I live in central mass or something. Um, people that are truly from Boston definitely have just, they have an edge. They have a chip on their shoulder. There's an attitude to living here for sure. Obviously we're all very, uh, sports centric, you know, loyal to our teams and, and whatnot. Um, but it's definitely slower than New York. Uh, I, feel like it's pretty fitness heavy for the most part at least in in the areas that I'm in and young it feels it feels just like a young maybe a, a little bit uh tamer version of a city <laughs> I know that you're and we're going to get into this more as we continue sure. that, but like you know what's what's the food scene like up in Boston the food scene is great um it's you know growing by the second it feels like especially in the neighborhood that I'm in it feels like there's just more of like an openness to new things you know different like Asian fusion places popping up where it used to just be need to be like straight um you know American like grill scene or a place that offers chowder and lobster rolls and whatnot um but there's so many neighborhoods and and hoods that offer like so many different unique things. I also feel like there's just more like younger chefs coming into the space and, and younger generations with a little bit more of like uh, advanced palettes that have a willingness to like go into Cambridge, which is like 20 minutes outside and, and try something new or whatnot. Uh, so it, it's, it's really good. And I, I just, I do feel like it's, it's getting better. Cool. And what was the, what was like the food structure? Can you tell us a little bit about your family growing up? Like, you know, I mean, we're going to get into talking about your family a lot and throughout the interview, but, uh, but what was your family food structure like? Like I, I know about you from our pre-interview that you're really into food and you're really into cooking and you almost kind of took your career that way at some point, but like, where did that begin? Was that, did that begin in your family? How are you guys? Yeah. Um, I was really young when I started like getting into food, um, which I think I had mentioned to you is, um, I think my family just always had this mindset that they wanted their kids to be, um, I don't know what the right word is, not advanced, but you know, uh, curious and like creative with food and, and with eating. So we grew up like eating a lot of fish, um, for like dinners and whatnot. There was always like a standard family meal, with, like fish and vegetable and some type of starch or chicken or whatever. Um, but my, both of my parents were, or are, um, good cooks. My mom's more of a baker. My dad was more of a cook, but my mom typically cooked most dinners, I feel like. But when it came to holidays and whatnot, my dad would really put on his his chef's hat and want to make, you know, big fancy things. So my dad's the Italian side. My mom's Irish. So naturally, we favored the Italian side a little bit when it 
when it came to get-togethers and you know his <laughs> his siblings were strong cooks his parents were really strong cooks so we grew up like going over there on Sunday afternoons and having um you know pasta and sauce or some type of roast or whatever it was Sunday so, sauce vibe yeah exactly as cliche as that is that really was how we <laughs> grew up um uh, it's cool and though. I think yeah I think we just mm. kind of connected that way started cooking that way and it was a a nice way to be together sounds nice. like, you have, like a really close-knit family it's you and your sister nice. right who's two years older yeah, it's just my sister and I, um, and we really have, like, a super unique, uniquely close relationship with our parents. We always did. Um, Why do you think that is? Like, where did that, is it, I mean, can you explain that? Is there a reason for it? Is it just something, like, like ephemeral that there's no way of kind of putting our finger on it, or do you feel like it came from? I've, I've tried to explain it. Like, I think my friends could probably do a bit better of a job than I could. We... We just somehow were able to navigate really well, like being um, respectful of our parents and like meeting their expectations as far as like doing well in school and sports and never getting into trouble. But then also, uh, you know, swearing in front of them or like jokingly like calling them by their first names or, you know, wanting to hang out with them and go out to dinner with them and and get drinks with them over other people. I don't know why that is. I'm, I'm sure it was their intention to always want to have that type of close-knit relationship with their girls. And um, perhaps it's also how, you know, they were treated by their own parents and have those relationships and level of closeness. But, yeah, my I mean, up until my dad passed away, I preferred hanging out with my dad over anyone. I would go home from Boston all the time to, like, have dinner, do something with my parents. And, um, I would always like, I would FaceTime my dad in college, like while we were out. And sometimes it was ridiculous, but he, he just got a kick out of us. Um, and that's kind of the saddest part to think (laughs) about sometimes was like, he, he loved to kind of like live vicariously through us. And he had so much fun. Um, with us, but I think a lot of that stemmed from the fact that, like, he was so fun, and it made us, you know, want to be with him. Totally. Kind of like a, like a really strong leader of your family, and as you mentioned, when we were talking before, you described him as, like, the backbone of your family. Is that... Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, he... Both of my parents worked full-time, like, my whole life, um, both with really strong careers, so... You know, I, I never grew up with, like, a mom that worked from home. I mean, a mom that was, like, a stay-at-home mom or anything like that. I had, like, two uh, very busy, involved parents. Um, but my dad was certainly the backbone in the sense that he, you know, could help hold himself together, you know, emotionally and and was good with you know, giving direction and, and, um, with advice and whatnot, whether it was for my sister and I, or for my mom. It sounds like he had a lot of good spirit too. Oh yeah. Yeah. And what I'm like kind of engaging from what you're saying is it sounds like in your family, which is honestly, I think unique. Um, unfortunately it sounds like you guys had a lot of mutual respect. 
Yeah, that's a that's a good point. Yeah, I think um, I think our parents, whether it was purposeful or not, kind of raised us to be mature enough to like make our own decisions and not have to rely on them for every single thing we did in life. Um, and I can kind of see that now I'm 29, like as I'm approaching my thirties, I kind of watch how other people have difficult times making decisions, big time decisions and, and working through challenges. And I realize, you know, I was raised to be able to handle these things. Um, I don't know how they uh, manipulated that for my sister and I, but um, that's the way that we are functioning now is, is that, you know, of course we respect them and talk to them every single day or talk to them every single day. But um, that was by choice. That wasn't, you know, a need to, to get through things, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And I think just even just on the level of, I think the way that the family, you know, re- relationship has been set up, the trope of it in our society is often very much as though, like, it's not to say that you didn't have this in your family because, you know, I don't know, but that, like, you know, kids are kids and parents are parents and, you know, you only respect your parents and children are kind of, you, you know what I mean? But it sounds like your family had a little bit more of a kind of vibe of mutual understanding and respect and you know I'm sure parents were authoritative in the ways they needed to be but I think that's cool and it sounds like you guys really created a a strong family bond there was definitely um a unique level of like transparency always like there was never and still is never any passive aggressiveness people know where they stand with each other in our family whether it was back then or it's now you know my sister and I or or my mom and I, if we have a problem, you know, we talk it out. Sometimes is there, you know, frustration and yelling involved? Sure. But I think I would still, you know, prefer to function that way um, than to not be transparent and open and, and hold things in. So that probably has something to do with it. There was, you know, this... Um, opportunity for us since we were young to have this level of like openness with our parents about how we were feeling about certain things or if we were frustrated and vice versa um if my dad was mad at us we knew it um and same with my mom but it was never like we weren't scared so it sounds like you had a stable loving upbringing yeah yeah and i yeah i'm i can uh I can appreciate now and understand that that's a rarity and um, and that it had certainly shaped me into the person I am now. So, Laura, what happened? What happened in your family? So, um, just about two years ago today, so it, the anniversary was yesterday, um, my dad was in a road debris accident. Mm. Um what does that and mean? I, yeah, so I I try to open with that because I I kind of hate saying freak accident. I hate saying car accident. Um, the truth of it is he was driving to his office and a crowbar either came off of a moving vehicle or was in the road and got picked up under a tire. We still don't really know the 
the facts of it um, and came through his windshield and hit him in the head. Um, and he died on impact and drove off the road into like an apartment complex and yeah. So there's, there's no, um, beating around the bush with the facts of that. It's a horrible situation. The circumstances are unprecedented. Sometimes I still have a hard time wrapping my head around the fact that like, why, how did it have to hit? you know, that exact spot, you know, that spot in the windshield, that moment, you know. Um, so, yeah, it happened the morning of August 13th, 2018. Um, I actually had a really interesting morning. Um, I was in this kitchen, actually, that morning. And unbeknownst to me, right around the same time as my dad's accident, these kitchen cabinets behind me like collapsed yeah so I tip- I'm not the type that's like oh you know things happen for a reason and you have all these um I don't know what the right word is like sort of like hints at you know to prepare you signs things to prepare you but right. um signs I, kitchen yeah. cabinets did like collapse when I was in the kitchen that morning and they fell on my cell phone so they like shattered my a bunch of mugs and plates and everything fell and my cell phone was not usable. So I, yeah. So I was at That's Verizon getting my cell phone fixed and no one could get a hold of me. And by the time I came outside, I was finally got into contact with my mom and found out what had happened. And um, I was just like in the middle of the street and, South Boston, and I, I have um, said prior, like it felt like I really was in a movie. I that's not an exaggeration. I just had this moment of like complete um, distancing from life. Like I had an out of body experience, and I was just standing there, like kind of having this moment of, is this real? Is this did my dad? I remember yelling, like my dad. Like I had to really like hear her say it over and over again. Um, so my one of my good friends from college lives in South Boston as well and she luckily was working from home that day and so she drove me to the hospital to meet my family but he had passed on impact so it was like we were rushing to get there to to be with everyone and truthfully that car ride is a total blur but um I bet Bobby, is there a psychological kind of terminology for what happens when you kind of disassociate in the face of trauma? It's called disassociation, and it's the way that we protect, our psyche protects ourselves. Because if we had to stay in our body, you know, in our mind, it would just be Mm -hmm. mind-blowing. It would just, we might even explode. So it's the protection, you know. What you're really talking about is it was violent death, and that's such a hard part of it, you know. It wasn't just that he passed, but he died in a violent nature. And that must have made it so yeah, hard to think sudden. about. Yeah. Yeah. There was no level of preparedness. And I think that that um, contributed to to my reaction, certainly. Absolutely. It's, you know, I so we hear so many stories on this show. And then in life, we hear so many stories. And I think we always, as people, 
have the, you know, conversation with ourselves or with friends, like, I'd prefer if this happened this way, or I could handle this this way. And, you know, you talk to people who have dealt with, you know, spouses or parents with long-term illnesses, and it's like, I just wish it hadn't been so drawn out. And you talk to people who lose people instantly with trauma, but there's a certain kind of level of just, I, I guess it's the trauma of it. It's the, like, unbelievable, out of nowhere, and it... It is, this... The suddenness. The suddenness. And tell me if, you know, this is something you would obviously know so much more about, but, like, I would think it breaks the illusion that, like, life is fair. Oh, absolutely. Or predictable or something you can count on, right? That, like, yeah. Or that everything bad always happens to someone else or someone's brother or someone's neighbor mm-hmm. or someone's, like, mm-hmm. and when it really hits with you, it's like, man... It, that I would imagine is extremely shattering to just the sense of what it is to be in this world. Is that accurate? Absolutely. Yeah. I think, um, the, uh, the, f- how fragile life is becomes, um, apparent and for a very long time. And even still to this day, that's, that's a, underlying thought and concern that um for someone like my my dad who just couldn't have been a better person you know was a defense attorney and worked for like the common man and um never you know smoked a cigarette in his life couldn't have was just like a great citizen a great friend and a great dad I started having these thoughts of like and he also which was interesting he was also super careful like my dad even though we all played sports and everything, he was the kind of person that if I went like ice skating or like sledding with friends, he would be like, can you wear a mouth guard? Like, can you, can you just, so I just remember, I remember having a conversation with my mom after it happened, just thinking like, why are, why do we operate so carefully as humans and so thoughtfully when it doesn't even matter? It feels, it feels like it doesn't matter, right? It, in those moments, it feels like it doesn't matter. Yeah. And it was, that was, you know, frustrating and it it angered me certainly at the beginning. But as far as like, I've definitely been asked the question, um, you know, do you, do you wish it happened a certain way? Do you think you would have handled it any better? And I, I absolutely can't answer that. And I think my, my response most of the time is just that because of what happened to us, um, there were a number of factors, obviously the manner in which he died, also, because of how highly publicized it was, it was, if you search his name, it was all over the news. It was on NBC Nightly News. It was on every news channel, Twitter, everything. So I, I could not escape it in that sense. And then third, we were less than a month away from my sister's wedding. So part of our processing was not normal or typical because we really had to hold our shit together to just get through this wedding and like still, you know, have things flow smoothly and and still have things um, work out well for my sister. So I think I, I took on more of my siblings grief um, on top of my own in those, in that first month at least, because I just felt so bad for her and I wanted to make sure that if we were going to go through with this, that it was still, you know, a positive experience for her. So I do 
that disassociation that you were talking about, I feel like was still um, a part of that, those first initial weeks because I needed to focus on the task at hand, which was, we need to get through this wedding. We have, you know, 250, 300 people that are coming to a wedding and we need to make sure this is like still a great day for her, but still honor my dad and, and all that. So it was, it was complicated in that sense. Very complicated. So you, you bring up, you bring up three aspects uh, that you pointed out of things that impact grief, you know, the suddenness, the violent nature of it, um, the unpredictability of it, but also the public tragedy aspect. And it reminds me a right. lot of nine 11. I worked for four years in a nine 11 project with families and there's something about that public exposure and always being subjected to it. Even if you don't want to think about it, it's somewhere. You see it, you yeah. know, whether it's on the news or other people know about it and people are pointing and that's the person, that's the family that it happened to. And then the fact that you had that sense of purpose. So there were different factors working. You know, we all grieve in different ways. And I think what you're describing is three very significant factors that impacted your grief. But right. I'm, I'm wondering if having the sense of purpose for your sister's wedding was maybe helpful in some ways. What do you think about that? Did it make it harder or more helpful? No, I, I would agree with you that it actually probably made it more helpful. Did it, um, did it make me put my grief kind of in the, my back pocket for some time that may have impacted me more heavily later on? Sure. But um, that sense of, you know, purposeness and like resiliency is something I've certainly experienced and talked about before that whether it was whether it was my sister's wedding or um thinking about like getting back to work I did experience this weird overwhelming um feelings of needing to be busy and needing to keep myself occupied and sort of honor him like I remember the weekend after it happened talking to my boyfriend saying um I got to open a restaurant. I got to quit my job and I got to go, I got to go to school and get my MBA and then I got to open a restaurant. And I think part of that was what we were talking about earlier is, um, the like fragility of life. If that's the right word, it made me realize that my, I, my time might be cut short too. Want to do it all at once, right? Do everything that you love at once. Yeah. I think subconsciously I was thinking that way that I can't waste any time now. This has been, you know, um, a really matter of fact thing that happened, but now it's, it's, and I'll never say things happen for a reason. I hate that. Um, I don't believe it, but I think it really lit a fire under a lot of us too. Exactly. Once it happens, then how you use it. Right. That's the right. Yeah. And we will be back right after this quick break. This episode is brought to you by Escape Makers On Demand Agritourism Training. Did you know that every $1 invested in tourism marketing returns on average $3 to $8 back? Not a bad ROI. Learn how to grow your agritourism business via 12 workshops entirely women-led. These training workshops are on demand and can be downloaded at any time. 
The local travel landscape is rapidly changing to meet the demands of the leisure, event, and corporate travel sectors. Whether you're a farmer or producer, a winemaker, a restaurateur, or a destination marketing organization, there's more opportunity than ever to capture these markets. The on-demand agritourism training will provide you with insights and skills to keep your target demographic coming back for more. 14 speakers providing six plus hours of education that you can watch at your convenience anytime on any device. Maximize your time, budget, and resources and focus on creative solutions to help your business thrive. Presented by Escape Maker and Fulton Stall Market, the full conference access pass is now available to purchase. Use the code HERITAGE2020 for $50 off a full pass at checkout. For more information and to purchase your pass, go to escapemaker.biz. That's escapemaker.biz. I want to ask a question actually about, um, because I feel like in some way your sister's wedding is kind of very central to like how we think about food and grief on the show anyway. Like the intersection of that is like, often about how do we find joy in grief, right? Like sure. where do you find the out? And celebration. Yeah, what does celebration mean in grief? I'm curious to know what was what was the wedding like? Honestly, I it felt like someone had given us each like 50 Xanax. It and I've never even taken a Xanax. Right. It was like <laughs> and neither has my sister or mom. It was like I, you have to believe in a higher power or some type of energy to have been there and experience just how chill and relaxed my sister and mom were and how just genuinely happy everyone was. Um, obviously it's, it's that kind of like awkwardness at moments where like people are dancing or there's, there isn't a father daughter dance and, you know, my 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 brother-in-law and his family like could not have been better about that entire situation. They just went ahead and like totally nixed first dances. So for the most part, like the general public at the wedding and like I said it was a huge wedding, they no one was aware that the first dance was missing. Like everyone was just preoccupied and doing yeah. things, but we did a really good job, I think, of incorporating my dad, but also just like the concept of honoring someone at the wedding. Tell us how you did that. So I actually reached out to an organization that did like dove releases. Uh, Yeah. So we had right after the church ceremony, which the we're a Catholic family. So it was my sister's husband and her in-laws. Um, so they got married in a church that was like attached to the, uh, location for the reception and whatnot. And so my, one of my dad's very good friends from college, he went to Holy Cross is a, is a priest. So he did the ceremony for them. So it was a very personal, like t- touching ceremony because he mentioned things obviously. Um, but then after the ceremony, they did like a dove release for my dad, which was a surprise to, you know, everyone there. So that was really touching and just so beautiful. And full Um, of spirit again. Yes. (laughs) And it was funny, like one of the doves. um, So they did, they did two doves to like represent the wedding. And then they did one dove to represent my dad. And the dove, the dove wouldn't leave. 
It was it was supposed to fly away, and it like, and it, I know. So we just we really did keep having these moments of like his spirit kind of like shining through, and everyone there was laughing, just being like, "Of course he doesn't, you know, want to leave the party." So that was like touching, and then um, we had like a small table set up with pictures of him and like messages from people, and um, they, my sister had pictures of him like made to tie around like myself her and my mom's like flowers um we also had everyone everyone wore little like ribbon pins for him too so it was a talisman right it was really nice mom that got you the dove oh that got me (laughs) (laughs) i'm sorry i know and truthfully by the way you don't have to say you're sorry to me i see 50 plus people a week that have tragic stories. So I'm so used to, but I let myself feel it. And that was such a beautiful, unbelievable thing that that, that the dog yeah. didn't leave. It really is. And I, on I'll be honest prior to, you know, m- me experiencing this type of loss and, and grief. I didn't, it's not that I didn't believe in spirit or energy or signs like that, but I didn't see um, how good it made you or others feel until I craved something like that so badly. And we had so many instances of signs and things like that happening. And unfortunately it just becomes, it it becomes all you really have to look forward to sometimes. And that's why it starts meaning so much. So, um, that's beautiful. And something that feels so sacred and so important. It's special, and it is something you don't realize. Like you, you know, it's easy yeah. to dismiss it before. Maybe you've lost somebody, but I have a thing with my dad and cardinals, and I always mm-hmm. like see them. And there's one that flies on my porch every now and then. And like, I think as you get a little bit further in in your process, or even in the beginning, it is like it's it's sad, and it but it's also so special, you know. And yeah, it's like a little treat. It's like thank you. For it is a little treat. Well, it helps to mitigate a little bit, right? It's a ba- it helps provide a little balance. Just like the suddenness of tragedy is the suddenness of something wonderful too. Right, right. You know, in the face of unimaginable loss, were there moments where you weren't really coping? What was what was that like? Like, how did you begin to to deal with this tragedy? Um. I mean, to be totally blunt, like, initially, I feel like I wasn't coping very well. Um, I wasn't sleeping. I was having a really hard time, like, getting up in the morning and feeling productive. Um, I'm not much of a crier or, like, an emotional person, and I was finding myself, like, breaking down far more often, um, to my boyfriend and whatnot. Mm-hmm. I mean, we haven't really brought up the words PTSD yet, but you obviously as a family were experiencing post-traumatic stress disorder. Right. And, you know, some of the things you're describing, you know, the numbness, the disbelief, the surreal feeling, the lack of initiative or uh, focus sometimes, sleeplessness, you know, all those things are really symptoms of PTSD. Did you ever treat that with the therapist did you go to therapy at all or how did you like Zara asked how what was the process like of getting through your sure um I actually did not end up going to a therapist and I still haven't but I have a really close relationship with my primary care doctor actually so when it all happened and she's here in Boston so when it happened I 
I reached out to her initially and she was so empathetic and ended up calling me right away. And, um, you know, she obviously suggested seeing a, a grief counselor and she helped me, um, get through the, the sleeping issues and whatnot and suggested certain things and was very thorough, um, with that. And I don't have, um, I don't have a problem with therapy. I actually do think I'm probably at the point in my grief where I am ready for it. But over these last couple of years, I haven't felt ready for it. Um, Just perfectly understandable and natural and normal. Yeah. Um, And I think the reason for some of that was I threw myself into work and busyness as healthy as that may or may not be rather rather quickly so I actually um so the accident happened in mid-August and I heard from a former colleague just a couple of months afterward asking via text message like what would I have to do to get you to come over to my team and that was that was uh for Yamaha, which is the organization organization that I'm at now. Um, so right around November, I interviewed with them and met, and it was um, a pretty uh, high-profile, more exposure type of role, more responsibility um, in an industry I had not worked in. In, you know, the realm and, and uh, type of work was similar, but in an industry, I had no familiarity with at all. And it was a, it was a huge jump as far as level of, um, seniority and responsibility and whatnot. And I felt that it was something I absolutely needed to do. I needed like a large challenge to take on and I needed to learn things again and be like excited about things. So, um, after just a couple of interviews, I was offered that role and and I took it and started that soon after. So, um, I think that sort of distracted me for quite a long time. Um, therapeutic too, though, of course we cope in these really different ways and hard work and, you know, focusing on a task is not to be, I don't think we should dismiss it as like, you know, you do these things, you have to go to therapy and then you. No, not in the least. No, I don't think you're saying that. Yeah. Yeah. No. Societally. Um, you know, we, we make assumptions, I think as a society, because we don't talk about grief actually openly, we have these assumptions of like what people are meant to do in order to deal with their grief. But I think like, you know, being task oriented and stuff is, is really, uh, it's many, it's many things actually. And the reason why I was making a point of that was because, um, having a sense of purpose, having a sense of meaning, having a sense of, um, it's not just distraction, right? It's, it's purpose and meaning. So it's, it's very, very normal and understandable. And one of the paths that people take through grief. Right. Yeah. And, and, Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say one thing I should have mentioned that I hadn't yet was the other reason for the level of distraction or purpose um, was, so my dad was a defense attorney, had his own practice. So we had a lot of work to do. Um, My mom and I, because my sister is actually a prosecutor as well. She fought, she followed in my dad's footsteps as an assistant. She's an assistant district attorney where he was as well. So she got right into work, um, 
after the accident and after the wedding and well as well. She wanted, you know, to Her get back life. and yeah. be and be productive. Yes. Um, but when it came to uh, my dad's work, he had all of these open cases still. He had an office full of thousands of files um, and emails and calls to follow up on. So it really mainly became my mom's job to to go through those and to do the math of like who has a retainer open, who needs to get money back. And that was a huge job. And that's something that's something that, um, you know, whether it's a situation like this where it's a private practice and there's a lot of work to do, or it's, you know, someone who's sick and their family needs to go through all of these like insurance situations. There's one part of grief. I don't and loss that a lot, a lot of people don't, have any insight into and that's, the cleanup the that's cleanup right the, cl- the cleanup is a mess the the cleanup especially is especially with your dad job. he was stuck he was stopped midstream yeah you know sometimes if people have an illness they begin to wind down but he was at full operating capacity and stopped midstream right and people try to be as thoughtful as they possibly can but there were clients of his in jail that were reaching out to my mom directly and saying like hey I'm so sorry about your husband, but like you need to transfer my files to a new lawyer or calls calls nonstop from a client that were like, you owe me $500 from your husband's retainer. Like he didn't complete his work. And, you know, some people are more um, human and empathetic to those things than others. So it added a pressure and a stress. And you're right. Other families, no matter what their situation, whether it's cleaning up the medical bills or Right. You know, cleaning up the, the uh, legal situation or anything or so many details, so many details that it's so misunderstood that people need that time after a loss to address these things. It's overwhelming, right. overwhelming. I like got stuck in that, I mean, the minutia of my dad's passing, closing up his estate, which sounds schmancy, but really it's not. He had nothing, <laughs> but like it took me two years to do it. And like I forgot to send a copy of something. So they sent, he lived in North Carolina they sent the police to like the next, the next person I wrote down in North Carolina looking for me because I hadn't sent a paper back. It's insane. two years ago. But they, but they, that's how it goes. And you're so yeah. right in mentioning that it is so hard to even imagine what goes. In. It's like I will compare it to saying uh, when people say, "Oh my gosh, it's so hard opening a restaurant," and like that's something right we all know it's so hard. But until like you go through, you it, actually you do it. Know, fucking clue like actually how hard because there's so many different moving parts that you could never imagine until you live it and I think cleaning up uh someone's affairs uh after they pass away is so hard and then for me at least when I went through that I don't know if you feel the same way but like it's a weird thing to balance against someone because you get so frustrated by the minutiae and like the tedious like nature of doing that kind of thing it's a good point like who cares about these details my father just died you're finding yourself mad in this way when you really just want to feel sad and empathetic and for me at least it was this like butting up of like things i don't know yeah i think i think for me it was my first instance with realizing that the world is not built to support the grieving um my my mom, you know, dealing with the insurance companies, I remember, for example, so my dad's car was totaled when the incident happened. Uh, so they got rid of the car. So naturally, they also then get rid of the license plates. So then she's 
arguing back and forth with the insurance company because they need the license plates. So right. it, I know that that's just like such a minute example, but it was like there we're lacking this level of empathy and, and human um, connection to be able to say like, okay, this woman just lost her husband. How can I make this easier for her? Exactly. I love how you said that the world is not made to support grieving. That's it's well not. said. It's really well said. It's really, really true. Yeah. And so how, about, how my... about the workplace? Was How did the work, your workplace support you? Yeah, you I was, I was really lucky with that actually. Um, so I was in a different role, like I mentioned, and I luckily had two super supportive, uh, super supportive CEO and president of the company, um, who I had a good amount of exposure to. So when I let them know, um, they said, you know, we'll be honest with you. We have never experienced a loss this, you know, uh, of this magnitude. So we don't have anywhere near a type of process in place to support this. So here's how we'll do this. Why don't you start with two weeks off paid and we'll talk after that. But like you go on your family vacation, you don't look at work, do what you need to do, take the time that you need to do and we'll talk. And when we did, we had a phone conversation two weeks later. He said, why don't you take a little bit more time off? And that is just so rare. And and so kind and my mom is an HR executive so she's she's experienced all of this and she was so adamant with me making sure that I knew Laura this is such a rarity you are being treated so incredibly well you know the standard is one to three days like this is you know beyond um respectful and and supportive of you um and then on top of that my on my return to work they had even suggested like new projects for me to work on and new responsibilities. So I think that spoke less to the organization and their like level of um, like processes in place and just more to the type of people that I was working for. And I was so lucky for that. You had written an article for LinkedIn about um, working at the, the workplace in grief, basically. And I read it a couple times. I thought it was really interesting. And you had written, um, quoting what you said, when I did return to work, I felt different. I felt like I couldn't relate to my colleagues anymore. I felt like anyone who looked at me looked to me like I was broken, fragile, and ready to fall apart at any moment. How, yeah. was, how, how did that play into your grief? And like, at what point did that kind of dissipate? It was, there's definitely a level of awkwardness, I think, early on with grief. And I experienced that in the workplace and out of the workplace. I remember like running into someone I knew at Starbucks just soon after I got back to Boston and everything. And I, you can tell in someone's eyes that they are so uncomfortable they want to say something. They don't want to say the wrong thing. They don't know what to say. And most of the time, they just don't say anything. So as much as my um, colleagues and managers supported me at my return to work, there was just this level of severe awkwardness. Stranger and, in a strange land, um, right? Yes, total stranger. And truthfully, I I didn't know how I was going to operate. Like I said before, I'm not... I'm, emo I'm an emotional, sensitive person, but I'm not much of a crier. So I was still in this fragile state and being at work, I, 
kind of had this level of concern, like, oh, no, is someone going to say something to me that that's going to make me upset or, you know. One of the fears of going back to work. Yeah, for sure. But um, I can imagine that's probably a, a common occurrence for for folks that return that no matter how close you are with your colleagues or how self-assured you are, there is just this, I remember walking in the door for the first time upon coming back and just feeling like I was walking, you know how they say, um, like picture a crowd, like naked. If you're nervous, it felt like the opposite. It felt like I was walking in naked and everyone was staring. That's a really good way. Well, when you're when you're in pain, you're raw, and if you're raw, it can bring out the same feelings. Actually, of, somebody uh, once called it walking around with no skin, right? And that's a perfect description because it you feel everything feels like you said so raw, yeah. and anything can hurt you, and you're trying to protect yourself, and you don't really want to be that way in society, exposed. But that's how you feel, exposed. So. Totally. Yeah, yeah. I think so. what you're doing, like with ag- advocacy and like you know opening up the dialogue about um, workplace grief, is really important. And hopefully that gets incorporated into like more workplace uh, HR initiatives going forward. Because again, I mean, grief is something we try to bury as a society. No, you know, no pun intended on that one, but um, that we try to like suppress. I should say, as a societally, we're not comfortable talking about it. And I think when it comes to work, it's really important because you know. Uh, it's like, you know, I was telling Bobby before when we were talking about this interview coming up today, when you're in grief, especially that sudden, really traumatic grief, like you experienced the loss of your father, I mean, it can be like you, you're in an accident and you're in a coma or something, right? And so your, your journey back from that isn't like, oh, coma to like the next day you go back to work. Like, well, your psyche did have an accident. That's really what happened. Yeah, acknowledge that, and like you know, we need to crawl out of those experiences slowly sometimes at first, and safely and supported. And so, I'm curious about the advocacy that you're doing. So, you wrote some articles. Will you tell us about that? The articles you wrote and what your advocacy is. Like Zara said, it kind of started with an article I put out on LinkedIn, and that I put that out on the anniversary, the first anniversary, and I coined it "Working Through Grief," and it was kind of an intended pun. Um, And it received a huge amount of support. It it got like, you know, 10,000 views or something on LinkedIn. Um, And just a few days after I obviously I was I was inundated by response for that article. Um, And a few days after that, I was reading an article on in the Wall Street Journal. I forget it was it was in their life and arts section something about work and I just had this you know kind of overwhelming feeling to to reach out to um the journalist for that life and arts column and I sent her a note on via email and I said um you know I I don't want to make this about me but I just experienced this and I don't think there's enough resources out there for people I think um, the articles that I was seeing or searching as someone who was grieving the loss and having to return to work were just so cut and dry and, you know, nothing nothing unique or um, kind of human to them. It, it was, it, it was just not fitting. Um, so I really just said to her, 
I, I think with your platform, you could do a lot if you talked about um, what it's like to grieve a loss at work. And I, what I made very clear to her was that I had a very rare positive experience as someone returning to work. And I know that that's not the case. Um, so she did her due diligence. She got back to me right away and thought it was a great idea. And she interviewed multiple people, um, but used my family as sort of like the central example. And she coined the article, uh, does your boss have your back when a loved one dies on the wall street journal? Um, as you can imagine, a, um, a news outlet like that receives a, a lot of response. I was totally overwhelmed by the amount of people reaching out to me on email and LinkedIn and social media. Um, I'd say 99% positive. There were some negative negativity thrown in there, which was tough. Uh, crazy. Public. There are. But I've... I just said this recently to someone that I've matured enough to realize now that um, the people, you know, that need to call me a, like, self-centered millennial just looking for more time off of work, like, have not experienced what I've experienced. Um, And also haven't experienced the love and relationship that I had with my dad. Um, Because I wouldn't feel as strongly in my grief or in this advocacy work, if I didn't have that type of relationship and I didn't have this huge loss and huge hole in my life. Now, I was just thinking that, you know, on my end, I, I help people um, apply to their insurance companies for disability and it's the companies often deny it and turn it down and they're struggling so much to get some time that they need, not just right away, but maybe it's a month later, maybe it's six months later, maybe it's even two years later. But it's, it's the, and I was thinking about, you know, maternity. There's been right. some advancement, right, in maternity time and paid leave. And so I, I really think this advocacy for this, uh, you know, is really fantastic. If there's any way that I can help in the future, I'm very interested in this. I really am. Because I see how people struggle in the day to day. You know, I see people for Thank immediately you. and then afterwards. And I know this is a big part of their life. And they want to go back to work because they want to be useful and purposeful. And yet it's not understood that they have a lot of the same feelings of PTSD. PTSD doesn't go away and there's no pill for PTSD. And it really needs, you know, it needs treatment, but um, it needs understanding. Right. And that's the, you make a good point. And I've made the same point about maternity and paternity leave. Like this too is a huge life change, a huge impactful experience and it it cannot be solved in three days um and uh the the one thing which you just touched on a little bit is that it's less about trying to take time off of work and more about employers and managers um and corporations whatever size they are wanting their team members to come back productive that was you know, what, what I had a hard time dealing with all these trolls online about was I'm, I'm not fighting for um, a month off of work just to kick my feet up and go to the beach. I'm, I'm fighting for people to have like the resources at their work when they do return so that they can be, you know, productive and supported and whatnot. Exactly. And it's really the education and the sensitization. It's 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 helping uh, right now it's desensitized you know there's just no sensitivity right. to it and how do you wake that up in industry and in, in right. the workplace 
So another project that you are involved in, which we definitely want to talk about before we finish this chat, because sure. it applies so much to food and grief, is Grief Eat. So it's Grief Hungry. Grief Hungry. <laughs> we had a That's okay. That that's okay. To see if you <laughs> remember your own, <laughs> your own project. No, that's okay. Yeah. Um, so one thing I haven't touched on yet is, you know, in your question about how to cope, one thing that certainly rang true for me was cooking. And I've always found, I've always found cooking, um, therapeutic and, you know, cathartic in a sense. And when I'm bored, I cook. When I'm entertaining, I cook. Like I, even as a young kid, my parents would be like, what are you doing? And I'd be like, I'm, it's 10 o'clock at night and I'm making like very involved brownies. And my parents would be like, why you always take things too far. Like, just like, it's 10 o'clock. Like, why are you doing this? Um, so I kind of realized early into the grief that cooking and like chopping things up was like super therapeutic for me. And my boyfriend, I think was, it was some, it, I didn't realize he was doing it, but he was really like pushing me to be the one like, you know, let's make a chopped Greek salad tonight. Like you do the onions, like you do the salad, you make the salad dressing, like you do this. Um, and I kind of started researching it a little bit and I found all these articles. There's like an article in the New York times about, um, grief cooking and, and therapy and whatnot, but it's not as widely understood that, you know, cooking and mealtimes are um, one of the most overlooked aspects of grief. And what I always wanted to do was kind of create a platform where I could connect my love of cooking with also this, you know, passionate advocacy work for grief and, and honor my dad and also be um, a point of contact for people that were struggling because I had so many reaching out to me that I felt you know, not even, um, prepared enough to help support because I'm still working through things myself. So it probably about a year and a half ago, I thought of the idea of, um, like recipe sharing for the grief community. And part of it is to honor the person that you've lost. So I take submissions from people. So for example, I wrote a submission myself for my dad and within that I contributed his meatball recipe. So the thought is, that I'm not only offering someone who's grieving an easy out for dinner one weekend, you know, if they're having a hard time thinking about what to make for their family, they can't even wrap their head around things, they're experiencing brain fog, um, they don't know what to cook, they're trying to make everyone happy, whatever it is, they can make that. But at the same time, they're honoring my dad. And that's something I still feel strongly about and I know others do is, you know, and you may as well, is your loss is the biggest loss in your mind. Your loss is the most important. Your your loss, your loss is the worst loss. Um, and you can't help but feel and that way. And it's not comparative, really. It's really right. not comparative. No, it can't be. So what I wanted to do was give people the platform, like, let me for a week. So I do one submission per week. Let me give you that platform for a week. Let's think about your person. Let's make everyone think about your person. Let's have people cook your person's recipe or whatever you mm. use to get through the COVID. Oh, so, so you mean other people are cooking the recipe at the same time? If they want. So, oh. yeah, I'm providing the recipes and it's my hope that people will, you know, flip through the platform and think like, okay, I'm having a tough day today. Like, let me make this or... 
you know, all I can pull together today is scrambled eggs. Like here's one someone suggested, like, let's do that. Sure. But it's nice. It's nice to think that people are all cooking your father's meatballs and somebody else's, they're all cooking somebody else's omelet or frittata. And it's nice to think in honor. And it's, it's just fantastic too. I think where you're saying, and correct me if I'm wrong in, in interpreting this, but when you were talking about as when your person dies, it's the worst loss because it is your personal loss. But there is something in remembering that, like, commun- as a community, we all have grief, and that, yeah. like, you know, just that sense of perspective and knowing, because I think that can be a very lonely and alienating feeling too when you're like. Your loss is this, and it will always be the most significant to you, of course. But I think there's something in knowing that you're part of a community and that other people have felt like as deeply as you felt. And I think like what you're talking about with, you know, sharing recipes and stuff um, is a great way of keeping that community perspective. And I think like in general in this discussion, but like we lack commute, like really a sense of community and we kind of get farther and farther from that you know, passing day. And so any way to kind of create community and prioritize community is really amazing. And I think really essential to finding a way back towards like a more being a place to live in that feels better for everyone. Right. Amen. Sing it sister. (laughs) But I think like, you know, starting in communities that we're sensitive to or part of like the grief community really is a community. And I, I think what you're through um, acknowledging grief in the workplace or through this project, Grief Hungry. I mean, it's uh, it's really awesome because it provides that sense of community. Do you feel that way about it? Yeah. I mean, I, I think in, we had talked about this before is that grief and loss can be like such taboo um, topics, especially for folks that haven't experienced like a significant or, or traumatic loss. But food and cooking are not. Mm-hmm. So you know, I'm kind of giving people a way in if they haven't, because I have an openness for the community. Uh, I'm providing for the grief community, but I also am trying to educate and be a resource to those that may not have experienced this quite yet. And they can, you know, share this platform with, um, with someone who is grieving or suggest certain things for someone who, who is grieving. Um, yeah, I think you're talking about how we've said this many times on the show that food it has to do with the heart. It has to do with love and openness and community and sharing. And um, so it's really true that the it's much uh, easier to enter through the concept of food than it is to talk about grief. So if you if you enter the conversation through, I used to do that as a hospice social worker. I'd go to people's homes and I'd end up in the kitchen and mm-hmm. we talk about you know either what their um, ethnicity was and what kind of foods they had or what the person who was dying was eating and somehow that was a way to ah uh, everyone's like and then we could talk about the issues that were happening right and it is honestly like i said such an overlooked area that not only is it important to be um, a resource for the grieving but it's important to bring attention to the fact that cooking and eating are severely impacted by grief and you know i've heard from individuals since launching the platform i've had someone reach out to me who lost um their father who said um you know my mom has developed like anorexia because of it she can barely bring herself to go shopping never mind cook because she's no longer cooking for her and her husband and that that's kind of case in point why um this kind of needs to be 
discussed sometimes because that the, the experience of grieving includes a multitude of areas. Obviously, we talked about, you know, work and we've talked, I've talked in the past about how, you know, being active and, and working out a lot has certainly helped me and whatnot. But people can be lacking that the same way they could be lacking nutrition and, mm-hmm. um, and even like the energy or interest in wanting to eat or in finding, um, you know, interest in that again. Totally. And that's where I think like the community element really comes back in. And I think one of the positive things about the internet, if you will, or, you know, social media, um, is that it is a way in which to engage with folks that you don't know who and build that sense of like just bond and community and like just normalizing, normalizing things that uh, should be normalized, like grieving and not normalizing things that should not be normalized, like right. not having enough time to cope as part of being in the workplace and, you know, stuffing it all down. And another thing I wanted to mention, which I think is great about what you're doing with Grief Hungry is that. I think something that we chat about a lot with people on the show um, is that people have really different feelings about what uh, is the right and wrong thing to bring, like, after they lose someone. So sometimes we'll have a listener and say, like, oh, God, if I got one more lasagna, I was going to throw up. And then other folks will be like, the best thing I got when I was grieving was lasagna. It, like, really helped me the day. And so I think, like, having a way in which you can kind of uh, get some tips on like what to bring or just even send, send a Mm -hmm. recipe to a friend. And Mm -hmm. I guess like, you know, it's a huge thing to be able to make a gesture and not stand in fright being like, Oh my God, I'm not going to say anything because I'll say the wrong thing. I won't do anything because I'll do the wrong thing. But having a resource, like what you're with what people might actually need is really helpful and really great. Yeah. And that was definitely, um, thought out as part of like the long-term goal is I, I read something recently. I forget if it was, I think modern law shared it and they said, um, you know, the grieving doesn't stop when the casseroles stop coming. And as people who have experienced loss and grief, like the casseroles stop coming, the text messages stop coming, the cards stop coming. People, unfortunately, a lot of them forget, um, that, this process doesn't end a month after a loss. Um, so I wanted to create this like hard, concrete, like actionable resource because mm-hmm. long-term I would love the opportunity to actually hand over a full cookbook of these recipes from the grieving community to the grieving community. Um, because nothing made me feel better than hearing from people who had also experienced a loss. Whether there was like a stubbornness to that a little bit early on, maybe the only people I really wanted to talk to were people that had experienced a loss and like maybe understood just slightly. Um, And I think, you know, there's something to be said about that is that uh, people can be more open to those that they feel that type of like innate connection to. You know, these recipes are really loaded that you have. They're loaded with love and emotion and sentiment and honoring. It reminds me of the movie. We often talk about this like water for chocolate. Did you ever see that movie? No. It's really wonderful because it's about grief. It's a movie about grief. And the the woman is a cook and she's cooking. It's in Mexico and she's cooking for, you know, for a wedding actually. And she's weeping, weeping into the food. And everyone who eat, eats it feels the emotion that she feels when she cooks. And so throughout the movie, 
she has these emotions because so much is going on for her and she keeps pouring it into the food and every anyone who eats it can feel the emotion. So yeah, it's yeah. So <laughs> as we finish up on each show, we ask everyone the same thing and I'm so interested to know what your answer to this is going to be. Okay. Um, but if you could have told your yourself two years ago, whatever, a little, you know, a little less than two years ago, um, when you're kind of in the middle of this, or the, at the very beginning of this process, I should say, uh, if you could have given yourself some advice, uh, knowing what you know now, what would that be? Wow. Um, I, I wish I hadn't been so angry early on. I think I was angry about a a lot of things. Um, I was angry at friends and family for, you know, their lack of response or stepping up or whatnot. And it's taken me until now to understand really that you don't get it until you get it. And you really just unfortunately don't understand it unless it's happened to you. Um, and so I think the advice I would, I would give myself is, you know, to have the capacity for understanding that, you know, you used to operate this way too. You know, when you had friends or family that lost someone, you also were that person that would show up on, you know, the momentous days, like the Father's Day, the Mother's Day, the holidays, but you now know how shitty those in-between times are, and you didn't know that until it happened to you. Um, So I, I wish I had, I don't think I was a bad friend, I don't think I was like a poor griever, but I definitely impacted relationships on the negative based on how I responded early on, and um, I've said before, like, I was really just rolling with the punches. I obviously never experienced something like this. Didn't could have never prepared myself for it. Uh, but yeah, I think that's probably the best piece of advice I would have given myself is to just have a little bit more patience and understanding for folks that don't get it. Totally. That's beautiful. Um, can you tell our listeners where they can find you? What, where can we follow you? What are you working on? What do you want to let everybody know about yourself and what you're doing? Sure. So I personally, I found like the best uh, grief community support on Instagram just by following like hashtags and whatnot. So that's why I that's why I kicked off Grief Hungry on Instagram. So it's just at Grief Hungry, one word on Instagram. It's on Facebook as well, but we have way more of um, a community and like engagement on Instagram. And you can reach out to me at griefhungry at gmail.com um, for, you know, submissions and questions and whatnot. Um, obviously, at this time, I'm just cur- trying to curate as much content as I can because um, I'm posting each of these stories and recipes once a week on Sundays um, so that people can kind of anticipate that. Because one thing I always wanted to be sure of was that if I if I did this and if I followed through with being a part of this community as someone that contributes to it, I want to make sure I show up every single week and I have something. So we're doing we're doing that weekly and a website is in the works. I bought the domain, but it doesn't exist um, as of right now. That'll be long term. Cool. Amazing. And we can't wait for the book and 
We would love to talk to you more. I mean, I wish we had hours Same. to chat because really it's just you, you're fascinating. And uh, personally, I'll say, and I'm sure Bo- I can, can speak for Bobby, although Bobby, I'll let you speak for yourself, but that, you know, just it's so admirable to see what you've done with, you know, everyone's struggle is different and some people are able to create and build and some people don't. And neither one is like, you know, the right answer. But in this specific situation, it's so admirable to see what you've done to honor your dad and to turn that into kind of advocating for other people um, in, in the you. world and open up this dialogue because it's really important. So thank you yeah. for doing that. And, and my thought is a quote that I have um, that I like very much. It said, time alone does not heal. It's our loyalty to life that helps us come back. And that's I what like you that. remind me of. You have such a loyalty to so many different uh, humans and it's really including your dad. So I appreciate it. It's been a pleasure that. to talk with you. Like really yeah. a great pleasure. And I really you guys, that we stay in touch. Me too. And and if there's one thing I want to kind of make a point of and be clear of for listeners or for whoever it is, if you asked me two years ago what I would do if I lost my dad, you know, I used to say this. My sister and I used to say this, that it was like our biggest fear. Like, oh my God, I don't know what I would do if we ever lost our dad. I, I would have told you that I would be hospitalized. I'd be tied down to a bed. Like, truthfully, that's how close we were, obsessed with our dad. And my point in saying this is that, like, I'm no, like, martyr for the way that I'm acting right now. Um, I, everyone has a different response. I have horrible days and good days, too. Um, but I guess my my point in saying all, all of this is is that if you feel the way I did at the time, it's not a threat that this might happen to you, too, but... It's that, like, we can get through it, and um, there is the opportunity to get through it, and there is a huge community there to support you through it. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for joining us for Processing. We realize that sharing these types of deeply intimate stories on air is a very personal decision. We began this project as a way to connect our listeners through shared experiences and storytelling. We hope that processing can be a platform for sharing, learning, and healing. We appreciate our guests' willingness to be vulnerable and value nothing more than making both our guests' and listeners' experiences with our show positive and progressive. If you're interested in being a guest on the show or writing in a listener letter, please email processing at heritageradionetwork.org. Please follow us at processing underscore podcast on Instagram. Processing is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash Heritage Radio Network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click at the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.